We are continuing on in the Gospel of Luke this morning. Uh, we're looking at, uh, for us, what's a fairly short section, um, maybe a normal section for a lot of churches, but this is Luke 14, starting in verse 25. Um, at the very beginning of this section is one of the hardest and things that Jesus says, uh, hardest to understand and just hard. It's just a challenging thing that Jesus says. So, um, so let's take a deep breath and prepare ourselves for a moment. Luke 14. Now, large crowds were accompanying Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you wanting to build a tower doesn't sit down first and compute the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? Otherwise... When he has laid down a foundation and is not able to finish the tower, all who see it will begin to make fun of him. They will say, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to confront another king in battle, will not sit down first and determine whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he cannot succeed, he will send a representative while the other is still a long way off and ask for terms of peace. In the same way, therefore, not one of you can be my disciple if he does not renounce all his own possessions. Salt is good, but if salt loses its flavor, how can its flavor be restored? It is of no value for the soil or for the manure pile. It is to be thrown out. The one who has ears to hear had better listen. This is the word of the Lord. Father, in this moment of silence, would you speak to us about your word? Father, we want to be um, faithful to you. We want to be faithful to your son. Um, Lord, we're here um, for the most part because we want to be your disciples. And yet you have given this word that uh, makes that feel almost impossible. So, Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would transform our hearts and enable us to hear, just like you said. Give us ears to hear. Help us to listen. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, uh, my experience with this passage is I, I can't get past the first thing that Jesus says. Uh, you know, there's these other things that he says to explain it, and it is very difficult for me to get past that first thing uh, because it doesn't fit with, you know, the way we think of how a faithful believer would live. It doesn't fit with plenty of other passages in Scripture, um, 
take the fifth commandment, for example, about honoring your father and mother, or, or take, you know, Paul writing in, in various of uh, his letters that, that husbands should love their wives and children should obey their parents and, and so on and so forth. We have all sorts of passages that make what Jesus says here about hating your family feel um, out of place, out of place. So we're going to work to uh, understand it a bit today. And I need to tell you the caution in my heart at the very beginning. What I don't want to do is soften something that Jesus meant to be hard. You know? Uh, in fact, everything I read about this passage, it gives us, it gives really helpful ways to, to understand what Jesus meant and soften it. Um, and and. And Jesus doesn't say this statement and then say, all right, but hey, here's, here's what I really mean when I say hate. You know, he doesn't kind of come back around and give everyone a, a hug and say, it's okay, shh, it's okay. You know, here's what I actually meant. So um, sometimes we need to just let Jesus be tough. <laughs> Jesus uh, can be really challenging. In the verses just before this, in the scene just before this, he told this story about a banquet, this, this amazing party, the messianic banquet. And he said, the guests there are the last people you would expect, the, the, the people who have been excluded and are on the fringes of society, the, the last people you would expect to be there. And, and the, in the story of that banquet, Everyone was invited, and the, the host of the banquet worked hard to just fill the banquet. He wanted people there. So we have to hold these two things in tension. There's this, this presentation of the banquet, which is joining Jesus in, in the kingdom and being around his table, and we remember that at this table. We have to hold that in tension with, okay, now Jesus is on the road again, he's making his way towards Jerusalem. There's massive crowds with him because they think he's about to go and overthrow Rome and they want a front row seat to that party. And he turns to the crowd and says this to them. As, uh, as he did, uh, for example, back in Luke chapter 12, Jesus sees crowds a little bit differently than maybe we would. Um, I, you know, I've been a pastor for a long time, and uh, it's kind of exciting when, when there's a, a big crowd. I'm not, nothing against us today, okay? You know, it's kind of exciting when the, you know, you feel like the room is bursting at the seams or whatever. You organize something and lots of people come. Whenever there's a big crowd around Jesus, for the most part, not every time, but almost every time, he seems more focused on trying to thin out the crowd, trying to, uh, you know, using disturbing statements and teachings to let them know, hey, this isn't the cool thing to do. Following me is not the hip thing. It's not trending right now. Jesus will not share glory. He will not suggest ever that following him is the way to get ahead in life. He will not suggest that. His consistent promise is that following him is a surrender of our lives, is a handing over of our previous ideas of success. So the question before us is, 
What does it mean to surrender? I mean, in like Colorado in 2023, what does it mean to surrender? Because that's what Jesus is inviting us to do, to surrender, to turn our backs on everything that we hold dear and surrender to him. I think when Jesus is talking about hating our families and even hating our own selves, he's talking about surrender. And the reason I think that is what he says next. He gives uh, a few, he gives some statements that are incredibly challenging. So first, let's talk about hate, hate our own families, hate our own lives, carry our cross and follow him. All right, that's the big statement. Of course, it's incredibly disturbing. He doesn't say, you know, also, but remember what I said about loving your enemy and loving your neighbor, and surely your family is your closest neighbor and sometimes your fiercest enemy, and so you should love them. He doesn't say anything about that, although I think we could conclude that. He doesn't, you know, remind them about the fifth commandment. He doesn't pull his punches. But then he says, carry your own cross and follow me. Now, we have a lot of ways that we think about that, but let me remind you the way Jesus and his followers would think about that. They're going to Jerusalem where there's a heavy Roman presence, and when somebody is carrying a cross, it means they have been defeated by Rome, and they are in the process of being executed. It's not some symbol about making it through a hard time in your life. For them, it is a literal defeat at the hands of Rome. And so when Jesus, that's how the early ears would hear it. When Jesus says it, he says, surrender to the enemy, our human enemies, surrender to them. And and frankly, for any of these people in this big crowd listening to Jesus, if they are Jewish, that would sound like a betrayal. He's the Messiah, and he's saying, you need to surrender to Rome. I mean, they're like, wait, no, they hate us. They are abusing us. They are, they are making life miserable for us, and we have all these prophetic promises that God will raise up his people once again. And so why would you say surrender to them? In fact, doing that would to any of their families feel like you've turned your back on us. You must hate us. For generations, this nation has abused us. Do you hate us? Why would you surrender to them? Friends, let's put it in a way that makes sense. We prayed our prayer, uh, our prayers of the people, uh, particularly with this war that has broken out in Israel in our minds, you know, and it's the, you know, the more you read, the more terrible it is. What Hamas is doing is um, just terrifying. It's terrifying. There's major loss of life, and there will be much more. It is the, you know, the latest explosion of a long, generations-long conflict. So let me put this in stark terms, this would be like Jesus saying to a 20-year-old Israeli man, go and surrender to Hamas. That's what, it, that's what it would sound like. If you're reading the news, you can imagine how 
disgusting and disturbing that would be for anyone listening. I mean, if you are, you know, a a young adult in Israel right now, all you've learned for your entire life from your parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, and beyond is that those people, those other people, they hate you and they want to wipe you off the face of the earth. And frankly, that's what they've heard about you for their entire lives, too. Across, Across the border, they think you're animals. They are sure that the world would be better and God would be pleased if you were wiped off the face of the earth. They are willing to use all manner of threats and violence to dominate you. And now you're going to surrender to them? Nonsense. Infuriating. Disgusting. If you do that, you are renouncing not only your family, but everything about your life. So Jesus gives us some illustrations, one about a guy building a tower, one about a king leading an army into battle or not, we'll get to that, and one about uh, salt. And they're kind of strange illustrations. Um, People love to highlight Jesus' teaching style. Jesus often teaches in in terms that his listeners would understand. He uses farming illustrations, you know, because they plant things and grow things. And anyone, rich or poor, can understand scattering some seed. You know, he likes illustrations like that about, you know, shepherds going after their sheep or, or you know, a poor widow losing one coin and being desperate for it. And he loves those type of stories. Well, here we get to a few stories that just are not relatable. You know who gets to build a tower? A wealthy landowner, possibly one who is the sort of in charge of a whole region. A tower is a defensive, it's a military structure that is defensive. You use it to, uh, you put lookouts up on top of it to see the enemy coming. You put archers up on top of it or people with rocks or hot oil or whatever. You use a tower to defend your land. And these masses of people, I mean, I don't know for sure, but none of them are able to build a tower. It's not relatable. Oh, by the way, there's no kings in this crowd. A king wouldn't be caught dead in this crowd. A a king, you know, so when Jesus is saying, oh yeah, if you're a king, you know, you got to be careful about who you're leading out to battle. Like, it doesn't make sense. Why is Jesus giving these examples? Of course, they're both simple enough to make sense, but we have to listen carefully to Jesus' words. These stories are not stories, you guys, about being financially or militarily savvy. Jesus is not giving advice about how to make a wise purchase. He's not giving advice about how to win in battle. In both stories, the point of the story is that the person fails to do the thing or is going to fail to do the thing. Let's look at story number one. The common reading of parable number one, building a tower, is, you know, you better make sure that you have enough money and resources to build something before you build it. But then he focuses in on the person who starts and failed to do it. 
The point of the story is actually to look at the guy who is made a fool by his inability to complete the tower. Now he has wasted all of his resources. He doesn't have any money left. He has half a tower or less, and he's totally vulnerable to invaders. I mean, we do this thing with with the other interpretation of this. Count the cost. You know, we we talk about discipleship as if uh, uh, it's a matter of like, well, okay, Jesus asks much of you, so what's what's the logical connection when we say you better count the cost? Sit down and make sure you're good enough. Sit down and make sure you have enough spiritual ability or, or passion or whatever so that you can follow Jesus? Do you realize that that's the subtle message whenever we say count the cost? Make sure you have enough to follow Jesus because following Jesus is like building a big expensive tower. No, I, I don't think that's right. I don't think that fits with any of Jesus' other teaching in this story, the guy fails to build the tower. He's a laughingstock. He's truly ruined. He might as well put up a big hand-painted sign in front of his property that says, free. Because now he's completely vulnerable. Let's look at story number two. There's a king leading an army to war. At first, this seems like common sense. Of course, any king would ask, is my army big enough to, to defeat that army? But then Jesus gives ridiculous numbers. It's not like, are you able with 10,000 to defeat this other king who has 11,000 or 10,500? No, he says 10,000 and 20,000. All right, uh, unless they're... They have Gandalf and Aragorn on their side. Yeah. (laughs) They can't go. They can't go. These are not the Spartans. They don't have Gideon. And God's saying, take a really tiny army. No, this is, Jesus is giving common sense in terms of military. He is saying, when you count the cost as this king, you realize that you have one option. You know what it means to go and ask for terms of peace when your army is half the size of the other one? It doesn't mean let's make a deal. It means wave the white flag, surrender. It means you march out to that other king and you say, enjoy your new property. Please leave my people alive. That's what you're saying. These stories are about failure and surrender. They're about finding ourselves utterly, absolutely defenseless. Jesus is walking into Jerusalem with a crowd of thousands, yes, but they are not an organized army. They're not soldiers. A few Roman chariots would make quick work of them. And their leader keeps announcing that his intention is to be crucified, to be smashed under Rome's thumb. That's his plan. That's the the king that we follow. All right, that brings us to salt. Story number three is like, one of these is not like the others. What are we doing talking about salt here? Salty or unsalty salt? Um, You know, commentators 
go to some lengths to describe all the ways salt is used in the first century, preservative, maybe, of course, seasoning for food. Uh, there was a certain thing that they would do when cooking, a, a common fuel for cooking food was dung, and if you put salt on it, it would help to disinfect the dung, you know, so that your food didn't taste like poo. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's good. Um, okay, that, that's fine. Uh, we all kind of understand the salts. Perhaps some of you have heard the, uh, the fact that it is chemically impossible for salt to lose its saltiness. Salt can never cease to be salty. It's salt is salt, and it's always salty. But with all of these, if when we get, try to understand, let's think about salt. I think we're starting to miss the point. You see, this is the third illustration to explain hating our families and even our very own lives and renouncing everything we own and everything we are for the sake of following Jesus. If my interpretation of the first two illustrations is correct, they are subtly encouraging us to surrender, to be utterly vulnerable before God. The point is not to make sure we can win a battle or build a tower, but to actually see the reality that we can't. So maybe this salt statement has kind of an inverted meaning too. Not about how to be great salt, but about how to be thrown out in a way. I mean, I'm just trying to follow like the pattern. The, the twist surprise ending is to lose in each one. Um, all through Luke, I've been reading this book by a, an Episcopalian priest who's also a gourmet chef. Uh, and sometimes he's a little crazy, um, and sometimes it's wonderful. Um, and because he's a chef, he had some great things to say about salt. And just get ready, I'm going to read to you a lot of what he has to say, because I just couldn't help myself. I'll try to break it up a little bit. But here's, here's what he says about salt. Um, First quote, salt seasons and salt preserves, but in any significant quantity, it is not of itself edible, nourishing, or pleasant, right? If you have too much salt, it's too much. On the basis of Jesus' comparison, therefore, we are presumably meant to understand that neither his paradoxical messiahship nor his disciples' witness to it, assuming they don't betray it with sugary substitutes, will be all that appetizing to the world. People simply do not come in droves to anyone who insists that the only way to win is to lose. Nevertheless, Jesus' teaching is exactly that salty. Hmm. The only way to win is to lose. Of course, that will drive the crowds away. For our Capone goes on to say this, in spite of all of our fakery, though, Jesus' program remains firm. He saves losers and only losers. He raises the dead and only the dead. He rejoices more over the last, the least, and the little than over all the winners in the world. That fits. That fits with the way Jesus operates. On Thursday, you know, uh, a handful of us guys were together studying this. Um, and Dave was sharing some insights about the fact that salt can't lose its saltiness and, and saying, perhaps Jesus is saying, 
Look, you can't change. You have to give up. You can't, just as salt can't change, you can't change, so give up. And this makes sense to me. Jesus wasn't giving financial advice or military advice. He's probably not giving culinary advice. Paradoxically, Jesus wants us to find ourselves as the guy who can't build the tower, the king who can't win the battle, and the salt who had to be thrown out. Therefore, in a different way, I think this chef, Capone, is onto Capone. I mean, his name is Capone. So anyway, <clears throat> he's onto something. He equates the salt to the message. So for him, the salt is the gospel. He equates it to the message. And he says, you know, not a quote yet, but he says, if we change it, soften it, or add to it, it's trash. The gospel loses its punch when it ceases to be a call to surrender, a call to humility, a call to service, a call to sacrifice. It loses its punch. When it becomes a method of financial, social, physical advancement, the gospel of Jesus, the king who marched an unarmed army into a stronghold of the enemy and gave himself up, is lost. It's lost. So, whether salt is about the message or the messenger, the messengers, us, that is whether you are the salt or whether the gospel is the salt, the point is still about victory through defeat. That's what Jesus is saying. It's a hard saying. So this brings us back to surrender. Surrender to Jesus will at some point threaten your well-being and threaten your family's well-being. Parents, you need to hear this and consider it very carefully. You cannot live under the assumption that everything you do to help your kids be successful is automatically what King Jesus wants. Do, I might need to say that again. Parents, we cannot live under the assumption that everything we do to help our kids be successful is automatically what Jesus wants. We can't. In fact, to the extent that we equip our kids to be winners in the world, whether in athletics or theater or academics or the marketplace, we are probably creating a confusing tension with regard to the call of Christ on their lives. But when you demonstrate sacrifice of your time and reputation and even perhaps your financial health in order to care for the poor and associate with the lowly, though you are risking your kids' resentment, and you might, you are in fact demonstrating the way of Christ to them. I think there's a reason why Paul openly suggests that faithfulness to the way of Jesus is less complicated for those who remain single and don't have kids. Because automatically we want to care for our families. That makes sense. And following Jesus sometimes puts that at risk. Look, let's acknowledge 
as I've already said, that the rest of the New Testament will go on to give advice to, to husbands and wives and kids and even household employees and employers, masters and slaves. It will not tell families to hate one another, but how to love and serve one another. But there is a stark difference between the crowd that is listening to Jesus on their way to Jerusalem and the people that Paul is writing his letters to. Paul is writing his letters to those who have already entered the kingdom and brought their families with them. They've devoted themselves to Christ. Many are suffering the great cost of persecution. The, the cost of discipleship makes sense to them. Now on the other side of the border, they're in support. They, they are to support one another in their devotion to Christ. Parents, you are to support your kids' devotion to Christ. Husbands, you're to support your wives' devotion to Christ. Wives, you're to support your husbands' and so on and so forth. They are not to put Christian language on the typical human endeavors of financial, political, and social status as if that's what Jesus wants for us. If I'm reading Jesus right, we're not supposed to put a Jesus spin on winning in life. So what does surrender look like? To the, what does surrender to the way of Jesus look like in Colorado in 2023? If I were asking this question in India or Afghanistan or China or many other places in the world, it might look more like what it did for the crowd in Luke 14. If you call someone to follow Jesus in many cultures around the world right now today, you are asking people to betray their family and put their lives at risk. I met a man just this last March, actually, who went to Israel with me, who had changed, he had moved to the States and changed his name. He was from Jordan. Why? Because his entire family literally had a hit out on him. It was, this was the, his first time back to the Middle East, and he had to be very careful about being seen. But what about us? What would you have to lose to be genuinely devoted to Jesus? What tower would you be unable to build? What battle would you need to surrender? What family commitment would need to be inverted in your life? If you're struggling to come up with an answer, I think the question is, what is dearest to you? What's dearest to you? When you honestly answer that, what's dearest to you? I, I appreciate the way the message translation um, translates 1433. He says this, simply put, if you're not willing to take what is dearest to you, whether plans or people, and kiss it goodbye, you can't be my disciple. Last summer, um, my, my family and I uh, ran in a little race, a little 5K. It was a, a 5K for charity. Uh, they're not a big charity, um, Open Door Ministries. There were not a lot of people there. I'm trying to set this up well. There were no elite runners there. Um, that's important to say before I tell you that I won the race, and I was very proud of that. Um, and after I won, it was, it was my first time in memory, like, crossing a finish line first. It felt so good. And my, my whole family was running, and so I circled back to find, you know, the next kid that was running along, and I was still wearing my bib, and the bib had a little, you know, tracking thing in it so that they can mark your time and whatever. And because I circled back and then ran in with my son, when I finally saw the results, 
I hadn't won anymore. In fact, I was way, you know, he's nine. I was way down the list of the finishers. And um, you better believe that I was right there with the person putting in the results like, hey, you got to fix this. And then I was sending emails for the next several days. Nobody cares about this race. No one. But I had to log in and see my name at you know, the top, it was like my, so much depended on that. But the gospel is good news to those who lose the race. Why? Because those who've been dealt a bad hand in life have an easier time trading it. I didn't want to trade winning for losing. I mean, not dead last, but you know, I didn't want to trade winning for losing It's no wonder that Jesus, at the beginning of his great speech in Luke 6, first says, blessed are you who are poor, blessed are you who are hungry, and all of those things. And then he says, woe to you who are well-fed. Woe to you who laugh now. Woe to you when people speak well of you. Why? Because when you win, the gospel sounds like bad news because you have to trade in your victory. And I felt it in that silly little way. I couldn't trade in my victory. I couldn't bear the thought of trading in my victory. That's most of us, guys. We qualify as those who are well-fed, those who laugh, those who are rich on a global scale. None of you are kings, but most of you have the resources that you could figure out how to build some type of tower. Maybe not a skyscraper, but, you know. You have retirement accounts, assets, reputations, connections, insurance policies. Not to mention you live in the middle of the most powerful and safest nation in the history of the world. Most of us need to hear the gospel as a woe first. Losers are happy to hear it because they can exchange their life for his. But it's harder for us. So that's what the cost really is. So friends, it's time just to reflect for a minute. I'm, I'm going to put up a few questions. And I'm going to be quiet for a minute. I'll, I'll, I'll conclude the sermon in just a minute. But I, like, we need to just say, what if Jesus was serious? What if Jesus is serious? What if there's a, a, a way of following him that might feel like betrayal to our families? What does that look like for each of us? The last thing I want to do, sorry, I will shut up, I promise. Um, The last thing I want to do is make it seem like, you know, uh, hey, I'm the good guy here to make Jesus' hard things sound easier. I don't want to do that. So take a minute, think about this. Okay, if you came up with answers to those questions, there's only one way you would actually act on them. There's only one way you would actually act on them. We have information that Jesus' crowds did not have. We know 
that in his crushing defeat, he won. That's, that's the information that we have. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. And if we understand that, it rearranges everything. And if Jesus won, it means he will empower your surrender. I want to make sure I get this right. Let's be clear. <clears throat> One more quote from that priest, chef. He says, The sad fact is that the church, both now and at far too many times in its history, has found it easier to act as if it were selling the sugar of moral and spiritual achievement rather than the salt of Jesus' passion and death. It will preach salvation for the successfully well-behaved, redemption for the triumphantly correct in doctrine, and pie in the sky for all the winners who think that they can walk into the final judgment and flash their passing report cards at Jesus. But every last bit of that is now and ever shall be pure baloney because, A, nobody will ever have that kind of sugar to sweeten the last death with, and B, Jesus is going to present us all to the Father in the power of his resurrection and not at all in the power of our own totally inadequate records, either good or bad. So friends, even if, you're th if you think you're a winner, even if you crossed first in a tiny 5K with like 40 older than you people and kids, <laughs> this is a trade worth making. I don't know if the guys understood that around the table that night. I mean, Jesus has given them all the signals in the world that over the next day, he's going to be betrayed. He's, going, he's, he's literally told them a tale. One of you at, at the table, one of you is going to betray me tonight. It's happening. And yet, he proceeded to make meaning of a meal that for them meant their rescue, meant their victory. Here's what happened. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks for it, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And every time we eat this bread or drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death his apparent defeat, his death, until he comes in victory. So, brothers and sisters, I would invite you, as we sing, to come and receive the bread, which is the body of Christ given for you, and dip it in the cup, which is the blood of Christ shed for you. Let's worship as we come.